I'm excited to welcome you all back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and today I'll be chatting with Dr. Selena Lane. Dr. Lane is a clinical assistant professor of emergency and critical care at University of Georgia. She wrote an article for the July-August 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief all about smoke inhalation. Hi, Dr. Lane. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. We have tons to cover in this episode, but before we jump in, I would love it if you would just take a minute to introduce yourself and maybe tell our audience what drew you to critical care. Yeah. um, Again, I'm Selena Lane. Nice to meet everybody virtually. I originally went to North Carolina State University for veterinary education and then ended up at a rotating internship at Purdue University. Um, After that, I have since been at the University of Georgia for an ECC internship, an emergency and critical care residency, and then stayed as a emergency and critical care faculty in small animal medicine. And so that's where I've been since 2012. And I think originally what attracted me to critical care was primarily the intensity of the cases. I guess that probably is a common theme, not necessarily the long hours and the <laughs> demanding, uh, <laughs> you know, caseload, but, but I think primarily just kind of the intricate, complex nature of uh, various disease conditions and managing that kind of the nuances of, of critical care really drew me in more so than the emergency side of things. So that is very exciting too. It wasn't just that you don't ever like to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. Luckily that gets a little better after residency. Yeah. So let's go ahead and just start talking about smoke inhalation. I actually, you know, in my career, I'm in general practice and I've been in practice for about 18 years. I can only remember one case of smoke inhalation that I had in a puppy that was in a house fire, but I would have loved to have this article because when it came in, I didn't know what to do at all. You know, the, it was actually brought in by first responders and it would have been nice to have a little of this information in the back of my brain <laughs> when it came in. So let's talk, you know, first broadly about smoke inhalation and how it damages the airways. My understanding is that there are a couple different mechanisms, thermal, mechanical, and chemical. So what changes do we have that occur in the upper and lower airways due to the thermal injury? In terms of the thermal injury, I think it's just important when you think about smoke inhalation patients that the five probably most common like clinical consequences all all relate to the airway. And a lot of those are related to the thermal injury part of it. You know, very little mechanical. Um, There are traumatic injuries that can occur with, you know, house fires and things like that. But those five kind of common consequences related to the airway, right, are acute upper airway obstruction, bronchospasm, some small airway occlusions, also pulmonary infections and respiratory failure. And a lot of that actually starts with the thermal injury, right? Because the heat itself directly causes injury to the upper airway. That leads to a ton of inflammation, um, release of reactive oxygen species, increases you know, vascular permeability, similar to the way that it would if it burned the skin. Um, it's just in the upper airway. And then that results in all that inflammation, more swelling, edema of local tissues, and that could be the tongue, the epiglottis. Airway obstructions can result from that. And, you know, to some degree, chemical irritation also plays a role in that damage. But the thermal injury, I think, does kind of start everything with all that swelling and inflammation. And then, you know, in terms of lower airway things, yes, there are issues with that, but a lot of that can be chemical related, right? But it still starts with that thermal injury to the upper airway. 
with the thermal injury first. And given their predisposition for airway obstruction anyway, I would assume that brachycephalics are probably breeds that we really need to be, you know, focusing on that obstructive airway syndrome if they've been involved in a, a house fire or, or exposed to smoke. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would consider them to already be a very high-risk patient, even just coming in for a nail trim. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I definitely would um, keep my eyes on them, especially, you know, being very observant and vigilant for any brachycephalic patient that you had come in that was affected by smoke exposure, both for those early upper airway injuries, right? Because they already are at an increased risk for upper airway obstruction, but also because they may develop pneumonia later as a secondary sequela of the smoke exposure. And so, you know, they are also at risk for aspiration pneumonia a little bit more frequently. So in terms of treatment, you know, I would approach them the same way as I would any other patient with these injuries, but I might be inclined to say, evaluate and take the airway or intubate earlier for a brachycephalic who's having upper airway issues than maybe another breed, um, just because of their likelihood and increased risk of obstruction already. Right. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about, you know, when there's a fire, the actual soot, you know, the particulate matter that's in the air. So how does that affect the airways? Well, soot itself is probably the primary uh, product, right, of most fires that anyone, any person or animal might get exposed to. And so it actually gets inhaled and then adheres to the mucosa in the trachea. And so once it's actually adhered to the mucosa, it disrupts those natural defense mechanisms, right? The mucociliary escalator, things like that. And so the airway becomes much less effective at clearing debris out. It also allows other irritants to bind to the mucosa and, you know, potentially um, that could also include bacteria, right? And so as the soot and other irritants get trapped in that mucosal surface, that's really irritating. You've already got swelling and edema. That further exacerbates the inflammation. So it just becomes this really significant uh, cycle that can be really dangerous for those animals. Once that soot adheres to the airways, like you're talking about, is there anything that we can do to help facilitate clearing it or is it just supportive care in time? It's mostly supportive care in time. There are you know, papers out there that have looked at inhaled medications, right? Like using nebulized drugs and things like that to try to see if that, um, not just bronchodilators, right? But other kind of inhaled drugs that maybe decrease inflammation or decrease um, oxidative damage or are thought to have that mechanism. There's not really any clear-cut evidence that any of that works, at least in dogs and cats and maybe still a little bit less so even in people. So I think for the most part, you just have to provide time and and just be vigilant again, right, for those complications that occur because of that damage that's been done. And then when we're talking about toxic chemicals, um, you know, my understanding is that the chemicals that are released in a fire depend on whatever it is that's burning. But there's a couple kind of common ones that we see in house fires. So what are those two most common toxic gases that we see when an animal has, you know, been exposed to a house fire? The top two would be carbon monoxide and also cyanide, uh, hydrogen cyanide gas. Uh, in terms of you know what what that does for the patients and what to expect, you know, carbon monoxide actually is the most common inhaled gas that's going to affect these you know victims of smoke inhalation. Um, hydrogen cyanide being the second most common inhaled toxin, and so. Uh, both of them can be quite dangerous. They both ultimately will result in an inability for the tissues to receive the amount of oxygen that they need. And so hypoxemia and hypoxia to the tissues and shock ultimately. Carbon monoxide itself, right, is just a 
you know, product of combustion um, in organic material. And so it is very rapidly absorbed when it's inhaled. And you can imagine in a house fire, there's a ton of it floating around and it can bind up the hemoglobin in the patient. And the hemoglobin really prefers the carbon monoxide or that that type of carboxyhemoglobin over binding to regular oxygen. And so once it does that, it makes them kind of functionally anemic. They aren't actually anemic, right? They still have the same number of red cells, but that carbon monoxide will inhibit the ability of the red cell to release oxygen to the tissues, and that makes the cells hypoxic. Whereas on the flip side, you kind of have a a separate mechanism, right? But still important cause of hypoxia um, with cyanide toxicity in that it interrupts aerobic metabolism because it binds to cytochrome oxidase, but basically impairs tissue oxygenation by not allowing them to do normal anaerobic and aerobic metabolism kind of pathways. So I guess fortunately, we don't probably appreciate as much cyanide toxicity in dogs and cats as we would carbon monoxide, but they still both could play a role. And so if you have a patient who appears to be very tachypneic or dyspneic, although they don't have significant pulmonary damage, maybe this is actually what's contributing to them looking so um, hypoxic. Right. And then I think we're going to talk a little bit later in the episode too about how that affects how we monitor and things like that. So we can get into some more details about that too. But before we get to that, one of the things that, you know, was stressed in the article is that, you know, this airway damage doesn't necessarily show up right away. It can oftentimes be delayed. So how long should we be, you know, keeping these patients hospitalized or closely monitored, you know, just in general? I would say at at minimum, I would want a patient to be monitored for 24 hours, right? That would be my bare minimum that I would recommend. Ideally, if the client can do it, I would recommend that they expect hospitalization for like 24 to 72 hours, depending on how severely affected the animal is. Um, And the reason for that is mostly because that delay often will start to manifest within the first day, right? And so it's nice to um, have them there in hospital in case something goes south um, very quickly, especially when you're talking about the upper airway. And is there any kind of typical pattern or progression for the clinical signs? You know, some some injuries are very apparent, right, in, in smoke exposure, because it's not just smoke exposure, right? They're usually in a house fire or something like that. But like we discussed with the upper airway and the lower airway injuries, you know, some clinical signs might not actually manifest in full until like 24 hours later. Sometimes even three to five days later is reported, and that's more with like secondary pneumonias, bronchial plugging, things like that. When you have like all that debris down in the terminal bronchi, some dogs come in and they have no respiratory signs initially whatsoever. You're dealing with some of their other issues. And then, you know, a day or so later, they actually start to have tachypnea or or some of those clinical signs. Um, I think the signs of like the bronchial plugging, where basically you have all that edema, inflammation, the soots in the airway, further inflammatory cell and, and cellular debris kind of gets plugged up in those lower airways and that also can trap you know bacteria and stuff in there and so if they ultimately develop like a secondary pneumonia as a complication then that could even progress over several days right and maybe not be even fully apparent until like three to five days later there are some other pieces of the patient management that i think do follow similar timelines but that would be like you know if they also have significant skin burn injuries you know like not just not just the airway stuff but you know some of that some of that cardiovascular instability or reduced cardiac output that results from significant burns, all that kind of stuff that may occur along with smoke inhalation. That could be as early as like two hours. It could be a day or two. So it just kind of it really depends on how severely affected 
the patient is. And some of those signs are very apparent on oral exam. Is mm-hmm. that correct? That, so, that is so correct. yeah. So what should clinicians be looking for specifically on oral exam with these patients that come in? Um, I'd say in terms of just before you get to the actual inside the mouth exam, you know, a common thing may be traumatic injuries, even just lacerations or, you know, soot around the face. Um, They often have tylosome, you know, excessive salivation, things like that. And also just evidence of soot in the oral cavity, you know, actually seeing the particulate matter there. I know that, you know, you can also, I guess if you really wanted to, you could look at saliva under the microscope. Uh, usually there's other hallmarks. You don't even need to do that, right? But it has been reported that can be a way to kind of support a suspicion. But usually you can smell the smoke. You can, you know, there's a lot of history to go along with it. In terms of inside the mouth, um, when you do your thorough oral exam, mucosal edema, burns in the oral cavity may be there, as well as on the face and lips. So it's really important that you do that really thorough exam. I think generally, if I see signs of that mucosal injury or burns in the oral cavity, it may suggest pretty strongly that there is going to be or there is there is some degree of smoke inhalation injury to the respiratory tract because of those findings. There are some retrospective studies that looked at like dogs and cats with smoke exposure, and they actually only found that a really small number of those animals actually had true burn injuries, but singed hair and like lacerations were more common in the dogs at least. So from a literature standpoint, uh, it doesn't support that a ton of oral injuries are often appreciated, but this is a really important part of the exam because I think if you have those, then you can pretty well assume that there is also some respiratory tract injury and those patients might need to be monitored more closely. And is it safe to like rinse their mouths and, you know, clean that soot out of there? Like how, how do you tackle that? How do you triage those, those problems? That's a, it's tough because it's a tough call to make and it's a little bit patient dependent because on one hand I would say, you know, like maybe a kind of a saline soaked gauze, like you could use it to kind of wipe out the mouth gently. If there's burns or lacerations, obviously we want to be much more careful about that because we don't want to you know, cause any secondary problems or infections. But, you know, I would be cautious about like truly like either lavaging or like squirting stuff in there to rinse things out because of just the potential that sometimes these animals also come in with neurologic signs, right? And that can be attributed to carbon monoxide toxicity or hypoxemia. And if that is the case, it puts them at risk for aspiration. And so I would just be cautious about really introducing a lot in there. But I think it's fine to, you know, kind of gently wipe things out. And then which, you know, medications or analgesics would you recommend in order to facilitate that? Because I'm assuming these animals are probably going to be painful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think overall for patients with either, I mean, if it's just smoke inhalation, I think that with, you know, just some minor burn injuries or the oral cavity pain, then I would recommend doing opioid analgesia. I think pure muse are probably your best friend for this, you know, and that could be as much as a fentanyl CRI if the patient has other significant injuries, trauma, burns, whatever that is. Um, you could also consider uh, methadone if it's available, um, morphine or hydromorphone. You have to be a little bit careful for those same reasons. We were talking about the neurologic dysfunction with like hydro and morphine because it can induce vomiting. And so if they have a lot of neurologic impairment or are maybe just, you know, they're a brachycephalic with these injuries and you're already worried about upper airway obstruction, the last thing I probably want that dog to do is vomit and then <laughs> aspirate or do something else. And so I would, I would just be mindful of which opioids you're choosing, but Maybe instead you choose methadone, which might have a little less of that effect, or you do a fentanyl CRI, which can be kind of titrated and, and less less so in that regard. If you really need like a more 
thorough oral exam, like the patient's super painful, they aren't going to let you touch anything or they're aggressive for whatever reason, then I would kind of approach it in a multimodal analgesia plan. Um, And that would be something that allows good pain control, right? Still use your opioid, but maybe also pair that with something like midazolam for some muscle relaxation and ketamine even. Ketamine is a nice option, I think, because it's fairly cardiovascular sparing for these animals. And so, you know, more so than some of the other drugs that might reduce cardiac output or or something like that. I I do think oftentimes we'll use butorphanol as a sedative and, and it kind of gets also used as an analgesic, but I think it's important just to remember that butorphanol is a great sedative. And so it might actually be just enough to get a good oral exam. But if the patient's truly in pain because of those concurrent injuries, then I would pick a different opioid. Butorphanol is probably not going to cut it in that. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. And the same thing along like, you know, like acepromazine, right? Like if the Mm -hmm. patient is generally stable, has a mild respiratory tract injury or something like that, and you're not too concerned that, you know, giving them a drug that could cause vasodilation and hypotension like acepromazine is not unsafe for that animal, then I think it's still a good sedative drug for an oral exam. But you always have to just keep in mind to those possible side effects, depending on what they are. Minutes make a big difference when you're tight on time. And these days, who isn't? Don't spend those minutes flipping pages or sifting through piles of search results to find what you need. Instantly access comprehensive case management resources, a pet owner education library, and of course, the drug information and tools that veterinarians trust. All in one powerful, easy to use platform with the revolutionary new Plums Pro. Visit plums.com to see why workdays won't ever be the same again. So as we kind of talked about or, or prefaced a little bit earlier, when you're measuring hypoxemia in these patients, um, you kind of have to be careful about, about the, how you're doing that. So, so what is the most reliable method for measuring hypoxemia? In a perfect world, um, <laughs> we would actually prefer cooximetry, which is a way to directly measure oxyhemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin and various, you know, hemoglobin anomalies, essentially. And that would be the ideal way to evaluate for hypoxemia in these patients. The cooximeter allows you to distinguish right between that oxygenated regular hemoglobin, right? The type we always are carrying around and oxygenating our tissues with. And then these other types of hemoglobin like carboxyhemoglobin, which is in high number with carbon monoxide toxicity. And, you know, if you have a high amount of that, you are unable to contribute to oxygen exchange in the tissues. And so if that's available to you, um, we, we don't routinely have it on the floor, you know, available to us even, you know, in, in a tertiary facility all the time. And so I think it is not common that that's going to be the best method necessarily, but if you could have a perfect world, that's what I would recommend. Now, some human hospitals will actually run it for you. So if you have that luxury, we have actually submitted samples, you know, to a human hospital that have done them because they do have co-oximeters routinely. Mm -hmm. However, I would say probably 
the more reliable and available method that we're going to have in practice would be something like an arterial blood gas measurement or uh, maybe pulse oximetry. But it's any, regardless of what you use, pulse oximetry and blood gases have their place and they can be utilized in patients with smoke inhalation injury, especially if you're worried that the problem is the lungs, right? More so than anything else. But you need to interpret those results with some limitations. Right. And so that's kind of what you were alluding to before, where, you know, because I think, you know, most of us do have pulse ox, you know, available to us and, and it's easy to just put that on, but we need to be cognizant of the fact that that might not be getting the best indication of the animal's actual oxygen saturation, right? Right. Yeah. If you, if you're evaluating pulse oximetry in the face of a patient with not just lung injury, right? Because yes, it's a, it's a great and very useful tool for patients who have just pulmonary parenchymal disease, right? Like a pneumonia or whatever it is, right? So absolutely use it every day for that, really. Um, But if you're evaluating a pulse ox in the face of a carbon monoxide toxicity, then that is going to give you an inaccurate result, right? It's going to give you a standard pulse ox is going to provide a higher SpO2 reading that is falsely increased um, because it cannot differentiate between oxyhemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin, which is why the cooximeter is so nice because it actually measures those two, but it's not always available. So just keep in mind that even if you pop that pulse ox on and the animal looks terrible and you're like, I know he's, he's got to be, you know, hypoxemic, maybe he needs intubated. Maybe he does, but not necessarily for the same reason, right? And your pulse ox then gives you a reading of, oh, it's, you know, 96 or whatever. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I think it, it must be something else. Um, but it could just be lying to you. <laughs> it could just be lying uh, to yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Is it, and, is it valuable to like watch for trends or? Um, I think the bottom line for pulse oximetry for me is that we assume that there could be some level of carbon monoxide or uh, cyanide toxicity in these patients, right? But truthfully, I think from a clinical standpoint, like anecdotally, I guess I would say the patients that I have seen, I suspect that that's going on. And I kind of follow the trends, yes, of my pulse pulse oximeter. But I do find that oftentimes they may just have significant pulmonary damage, you know, from the smoke inhalation, soot, edema, secondary bacterial infections, things like that. And so I I do think pulse oximetry still has its place. I think where it's going to be most confusing might be in that first like 24-hour period when it's difficult to tell the difference between pulmonary injury from, you know, thermal injury, chemical injury, whatever, and a patient who appears dyspneic, but only because they are, they have a tissue hypoxia, right? Because they have carbon monoxide right. a, a toxicity or whatever. And it's also complicated by the fact that um, even an arterial blood gas value may not look very abnormal in a patient who has carbon monoxide toxicity because the PaO2 or the partial pressure of arterial oxygen is not typically very affected with that. It's really just they have high levels of carboxyhemoglobin that's bound up. And so if the lungs are normal, your art gas might look very normal. Your pulse ox may definitely look normal, uh, but in fact, it's it's not normal. It's just a matter of, of how it measures things. It's just not reading it correctly. Right. So what are the most common radiographic findings in these patients? Um, there are a lot of patterns that have been reported. Um, and I think clinically, uh, we appreciate 
a variety of appearances and severity. But typically you're looking for kind of this patchy pattern that could be a mix of patterns. It could be bronchial, heavy interstitial, or even an alveolar pattern. And it could be kind of patchy throughout. It doesn't have to be just cranioventral or just cauterodorsal. All or any lung fields could be affected at any point. So I would, I'd say most commonly, I would appreciate a diffuse kind of patchy interstitial to alveolar pattern. And there are also reports that it is not uncommon to see right middle lung lobe consolidation or just general, you know, pick a lobe, <laughs> lung lobe consolidation <laughs> or collapse. And that doesn't typically happen right away. Like that might be seen a, a day or two later, just because all of that inflammatory cell debris, soot, things like that actually starts to plug up the main stem bronchi and that can lead to a lung lobe collapse or consolidation. And then also pleural effusion is something that you might see on radiographs, especially in cats. That has just been uh, reported with an increased incidence in cats. It could be asymmetric. Definitely if they have like a secondary bacterial pneumonia, then over time you might see a more pronounced alveolar pattern, your bronchograms, things like that. So I guess bottom line is it could look like anything, but it's kind of classically that patchy interstitial to alveolar pattern. And I think it's just important to remember that radiographic changes don't necessarily always correlate to how severe the respiratory tract injury is. You know, like you might need to do serial radiographs over time. Right. Well, oftentimes, you know, I find with with pulmonary patterns, they can lag behind significantly. The radiographic changes can can sometimes lag behind the clinical picture. Absolutely. What about ultrasound? So is there any advantage to, you know, performing an ultrasound versus just your plain thoracic rads in these patients? I would say that there's not a clear advantage to ultrasound over rads, right? Like, like they both kind of have their place. And I would say that in general, especially if I'm dealing with trying to differentiate an aspiration pneumonia or some other secondary pneumonia, or just, you know, progression of the burn injury or the smoke inhalation injury to the lungs. For me, being able to like serially look at radiographs and how they compare and how that pattern distribution has changed over time, sometimes that can be a benefit. So I don't know that there's a clear advantage to doing ultrasound over RADS. I do find that bedside ultrasound can be very helpful for those patients in the first 24 hours because they're not super stable. And if they are very affected, you know, or they have a lot of burn injuries that you need to address those wounds. And it's like a whole thing to get them to wherever you need to take radiographs, you know? <laughs> and so, and, um, and to restrain them exactly. or, you know, potentially, yeah, have to yeah. sedate them if you're trying to do as much hands-off, you know, restraint as possible when you're taking x-rays. Exactly. I think that that is the true benefit of ultrasound, right? And that it allows you in that really critical period in the first day or two, especially when they're very hypoxemic, maybe they have carbon monoxide toxicity, whatever it is thoracic ultrasound does allow you to identify location of the affected lung fields you know is it kind of diffuse patchy bee lines everywhere is it pleural effusion in the cat that can be very helpful for you in terms of management and knowing what to expect though i think you know like it's kind of the trade-off is that serial ultrasounds can be helpful but you have to make sure you document kind of exactly what you see and that can be a little bit in up to interpretation depending on if the same person isn't ultrasounding each time things like that and I hadn't realized, you know, until we talked now that, that cats got more of the pleural effusion. Do you ever need to tap them? 
Um, I have not actually had a cat that has developed it. I have read that it is <laughs> that it is um, reported, right? If they mm-hmm. and saying looking over the span of years in a hospital that saw say twenty two or twenty five cats, I think it was in the study, and they had an increased incidence of pleural effusion over the dogs. I guess cats do as cats do, and they do whatever they want. <laughs> Um, but I think I would probably use ultrasound as a way to kind of help me decide, do I think that actually a tap would be beneficial for this cat? Because if you think about, oh, it's just a small volume in a normal cat, that might not matter very much. But if you have a cat who also has significant lines, secondary pneumonias, whatever, they don't have a ton of reserve. And so any space you can give them to increase their ability to uh, ventilate and oxygenate is probably helpful. So I think that if it's a, if it appears to be an amount that might provide some relief in a dysmic cat, then it might be worth, you know, trying to relieve some of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, it's probably a little different from an animal that doesn't have, you know, that has pleural effusion for some other reason, you know, right. and, and not that concurrent damage going on inside the lungs. Yeah, so. exactly. So talking about treatment, I mean, oxygen, 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 right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's tons of ways to administer oxygen. Um, do we have some methods of oxygen supplementation that are preferred? Again, right, everything is so patient dependent when you're talking about critical care because it, there's no one thing that works for everybody. But I would say 100% totally agree. Oxygen supplementation is an immediate priority for these smoke exposure patients, you know, and also presuming they have either carbon monoxide or cyanide toxicity. And that alone, the oxygen supplementation alone could cause significant clinical improvement, even just within minutes, right? And so in terms of delivery, I would say probably in your initial assessment, it's probably easiest to do something like flow by with the tubing in front of the patient or a face mask, though you have to be cognizant of the fact that some animals are already panicking and feeling like they can't breathe. And so, you know, forcing them to put their face inside a mask can be a little bit more distressing for them. So you might have to pair that with some sedation um, or pain meds. Um, I think nasal cannulas can be really helpful for these patients, depending on um, how severe their injuries are. Obviously, if they are so severely affected that even handling them can be quite distressful, then an oxygen cage is another great option, right? But the downside of the oxygen cage, of course, you know, being that you can't really touch them often. And so if you have a a less stable patient or something like that, that might not be as helpful. And then ultimately, right, if you have a persistently hypoxemic patient that doesn't respond to those general ways of providing traditional oxygen supplementation, then you might need to anesthetize them and intubate them to give them 100% oxygen. And then what about fluids? Do fluids play a role in treating these patients? Yeah, fluids are kind of tough in these patients because you're kind of walking a little bit of a balance between avoiding over-resuscitation with fluids and then also not underdoing it for a patient who may have concurrent other injuries, decreased cardiac output, and hypovolemia from like burn injuries or things like that. And so my main consideration with regards to the lungs is that I, I don't want to overdo it because they already have very you know, leaky capillaries, a lot of vascular endothelial damage. And so edema is already occurring. And so if you're really overzealous with your fluid resuscitation, then that can result in worsening that edema in the lungs. But you have to pair that with the knowledge that we still also have to support the cardiovascular system. And so if you had a patient who had smoke inhalation, but also significant dermal burn injuries, then they may have very high fluid requirements. And that's that's not always necessarily the case if you just have isolated smoke inhalation injury to the lungs, right? So just the 
just enough is what we need. And that can be a little bit difficult, but I think the big consideration is making sure you don't overdo it to make the edema worse. And then we talked already about analgesics and a little bit about sedatives too, but what about, is there, is there any role for steroids or NSAIDs when you're managing these cases? Yeah, I would say generally I'm going to avoid both of them. And that probably is just an initial maybe rule of critical care. Like until we know more, we might avoid steroids <laughs> and NSAIDs. But I, uh, the reason being, I, I'll start with NSAIDs, I guess. I would be careful using NSAIDs for analgesia just from the standpoint of if you haven't been able to fully assess their cardiovascular status or any concurrent injuries, then we know that if they have burns or, or anything else, that those patients are at a super high risk for hypovolemia, reduced cardiac output. And so then if on top of that, we, you know, we have a patient who already has poor perfusion to the kidneys, and then on top of that, we pair it with an NSAID that might reduce renal perfusion even further, then that could result in acute kidney injury. And so you just want to make sure that your patient selection for the NSAIDs is appropriate. If you have a patient who has is otherwise fairly comfortable, but everything is manifesting as respiratory injury, then I, I don't know that NSAIDs are necessarily indicated. So they, you know, cause you're more so just managing the lung injury um, and the hypoxemia. In terms of steroids, I would say there's actually more info probably out there um, in looking at that, at least pretty extensively in people, um, more so than animals, but there are experimental studies that show kind of variable effects of steroids um, after smoke inhalation, like does it decrease the inflammation in the airway, right? Because that's kind of the fault behind giving it. And the majority of those experimental studies didn't really show any clear benefit to the patients and actually did show that humans that received steroids that had smoke inhalation had an increased risk of developing a secondary bacterial pneumonia. And so generally, I wouldn't recommend doing the steroids. The NSAIDs, maybe I could be persuaded depending on how they're doing hemodynamically, you know. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, again, it's the same with the analgesics, right? Like, not choosing to use dexmedetomidine, right? Because maybe they become less stable, they become hypovolemic over time in that first 24 hours or whatever. So um, I think NSAIDs are kind of like a plus minus for me, depending on how the patient's doing systemically. Steroids, I'd probably say no, based on what we know in humans, even though that doesn't necessarily always mean that's exactly what will happen in dogs and cats. Sure. And then what about bronchodilators? What should make you know me reach for a bronchodilator? I would say generally, if the patient's having like wheezes on auscultation or you're concerned about airway constriction for any reason, like mostly we we base that on, do we hear wheezes or when I escort them, do I hear that in the lower airway? And so I would say empiric use of bronchodilators would be indicated for those patients. I don't think that it would be detrimental, even if they didn't have the wheezes, you know, I think that generally mm-hmm. it would be a safe empiric therapy to do, but I definitely would use it if I heard wheezing. Okay. And then do you generally reach for injectable or inhaled bronchodilators? I would say, you know, you have some options, like usually terbutaline, which can be injectable, aminophilin, um, which is mostly IV diluted out. Um, and those, for me, are maybe a little easier to give than inhaled bronchodilators because some patients, you know, they find those inhaled drugs kind of bothersome because you have to use like the arrow cat or the arrow dog and mm-hmm. get the face mask on their face. And if they already have either edema or dyspnea or something like that, then you know, or that facial trauma, edema, burns, whatever, or they're just difficult to handle because they're unstable or whatever it is, right? They need to be in the oxygen cage, in which case it's just easier. So I probably would choose for patient comfort and also safety. I'd probably choose IV over inhaled 
that doesn't mean that an inhaled bronchodilator wouldn't be effective. I just think it might lessen the stress on the patient. Might just be easier to give the other. Yeah. And then antibiotic stewardship. You, This is really a core <laughs> component of decision-making in all of our cases. There are definitely some times where these patients need antibiotics. So what are those? Like when are antibiotics indicated? when should we keep them on the shelf? That's a great question um, and always very important. Prophylactic antibiotics really aren't recommended just as a blanket use for these patients because obviously we don't want to risk selecting for resistant organisms if we can avoid it. And they may not actually have pneumonia, right? They may just have changes on their radiographs that are consistent with pulmonary injury from thermal and chemical damage. And so if you have suspicion of bacterial pneumonia, right, increasing white cell counts, uh, no other reason for that to be happening, right? Like there aren't also significant skin injuries and things like that. Fever, you know, maybe that might be something that prompts you like it was relatively stable for a day or two. And now the respiratory signs are kind of not really improving as much as you thought they would. And the radiographs might have progression of the pulmonary pattern. So then you choose to use antibiotics based on that. Then I think those would be the reasons to definitely do it. Also, if you think that you have a patient that's, you know, yes, has respiratory signs, but might be becoming septic because of their skin wounds or burn wounds or things mm -hmm. like that, um, then also broad spectrum antibiotics would probably be, well, would definitely be indicated in terms of, you know, what do I choose? I choose something broad spectrum. I want gram negative and gram positive coverage. But if, you know, say my respiratory patient doesn't have any skin wounds or burns, pretty mild respiratory disease appears to be improving with supportive care and oxygen and time and the radiographs really aren't all that impressive, you know, over time, then I wouldn't start antibiotics in those patients. And then what about prognosis for these cases? Um, what are the main factors that affect the prognosis and, and overall is the prognosis good? Yeah, overall, actually, the general thought is that it's pretty good as long as they don't have a lot of significant concurrent injuries, right? Because I think that's the hard thing with these these patients because they don't come to you just with smoke inhalation injury most of the time. Um, they may also have, you know, burns or, or things like that. I think the big three things that prognosis for me depends on are how long were they exposed to it? How severe are their clinical signs when they first get to you, right? Like they didn't take 24 hours to develop that need for intubation. They already are in need of it right when they come to you. That can be a really severe case and might mean a much more guarded prognosis. And then also the extent of concurrent injuries. We know that in people and in animals, if you have significant concurrent burn injuries, then those patients do tend to have a a lower survival rate. But overall, you know, with a few retrospective studies out there and some case series, um, survival rates are reported to be as high as 90% for dogs and cats. So overall, pretty good, you know, and, and if they don't necessarily worsen from a respiratory or neurologic standpoint within the first day or two of hospitalization, then they probably have a, a quite a good prognosis. Well, that was all the questions that I had for you today. That was fantastic. I feel Great. much more confident if I ever have another one of these come in. Not that, you know, I wish for that. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Before I let you go today, there is a quick game that we like to play at the end okay. of our episodes <laughs> with our guests, if you don't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> it's actually just a couple quick fun would you rather type questions? Okay. So there's no right or wrong answer. It's just for fun. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, we'll get started. So first off, would you rather place a catheter in a dehydrated kitten or an obese basset hound? I'll take the dehydrated kitten. You'll take the little kitten. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like a challenge, but those are both challenges. <laughs> they are very. <laughs> so are the bassets though, with all those wrinkles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Would you rather learn a new skill every year or hone one skill and become the best in the world at it? 
Oh, new skill every year for sure. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I think it gets <laughs> when you are a specialist, right? You kind of um, uh, do continue to hone the same skills, you know, as you, especially if you're at a university, right? We're training residents and things like that, mm-hmm. or or at a practice that does that. So I think, yeah, I think new skills keeps it fresh. Like to learn something new. <laughs> That's right. Okay. If you had to practice without one, would you rather practice without ultrasonography or without radiography? Oh, that's tough, but I'm going to go with no ultrasound. No ultrasound. I I love an ultrasound, let me tell you, but um, radiographs, I think, I don't know, they're tried and true. They can do a lot for the abdomen and thorax. You know, they both have their place, but, um, and um, and it's not an unreasonable question. Oftentimes the ultrasound may be broken. <laughs> Uh, sometimes the, the, uh, x-ray machine is yeah, broken exactly. at my practice. So, so. Yeah. So you can practice whichever <laughs> world you'd like to live in on a regular basis. <laughs> okay. Would you rather be stuck in the ICU with a really loud hyperthyroid cat or a dysphoric husky? Oh, that's easy. Cat. hundred <laughs> percent. You don't want that howling husky. Mm-mm, no, never. <laughs> okay. Last question. So. If Cerberus, the three-headed dog, was recovering from abdominal surgery, would you put an e-collar on each head or would you put like a big e-collar around all three heads? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm going to go with one e-collar because I don't know if you guys <laughs> ever tried to just get one e-collar to stay on an animal, but I can't imagine having to get three to stay <laughs> on an animal. Try to have three e-collars. Yeah, exactly. And then like walking him and they'd be yes. all bumping into separate things. Yes, exactly. I, See, and also one head could help. Like if one head gets the e-collar off, that head could then help the other heads get their e-collar off. So yeah, it right. just could be a mess. This <laughs> one big e-collar. I like <laughs> yes. it. All right. That was it. See, that wasn't so hard, right? No, no, not bad at all. (laughs) Thanks again for talking with us today. This has been just fantastic. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at cliniciansbrief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson. <laughs>